Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Early in the morning, at half past four, came cocaine, came knocking at my door. I got cocaine running around my brain. Cocaine's for horses, not for men. Doctors said it's gonna kill you, but he don't know when. I got cocaine running all around my brain. Welcome to episode 21 of Surf Center. This is Chad White along with Damian Farenfort from Free Radicals, and we have the distinct pleasure today of uh, introducing you to, again, to, to Michael Oblowitz, who we had the pleasure of interviewing a few weeks back, and we didn't get enough out of that interview, so we decided to sit him back down uh, behind the mic. He's not an easy man to lock down. Uh, he's on the move a lot. He's got that kind of zest for life that he's always like constantly has to be doing something or out and about and that. So uh, it took a few weeks for us to lock him down and to see the movie finally, but we did, and it was incredible, and we had so many questions, and uh, we actually included in a couple questions from couple people that listen, a couple podcast uh, followers that have been like super intrigued on what was next and kind of what, what we thought when we saw the film. So we asked him a few of those and he came back. He had a lot to say this time around. Oh, it was awesome. And, you know, I mean, anything from, from you know, how he would recommend that we draw inferences to, you know, to certain connections and which are pretty awesome. And then also to, I mean, he got really into politics. He got into, you know, anything. Right, in, I want to say, you don't want to say the the P word. Oh, not really. I wouldn't even. Out. Okay, then politics probably isn't the right way to put it. Uh, he got into some pretty interesting territory. Yeah. Is maybe the better Surf way politics. to say. Politics. Surf politics. Right. <laughs> politics. Exactly. Um, but it, it, it's it's uh, it, I w- we we're both considering it not to set it up too badly, but for as the best interview we've done yet. Just by be, far. By yeah. far. Right. It's ninety minutes of pure gold. I mean, he's there's a, there's one question that Sean Tully from Innocence asks about. You know, can surfing be rebellious again? And the answer that he came with, I was just kind of dumbfounded. And yeah, and it just got into this whole other thing. So, so th- that to me was the was really, and thanks so much, Sean, for for that thoughtful question because it's a really the we kind of just thought the answer would be simple, and it really isn't simple at all. And in, in the way that he unpacked that for us, um, I think it'll be everybody's favorite piece of this in, this this interview, right? Totally. And then it just, I mean, just watching the film, you know. Hopefully you guys get to see it. You'll see we kind of advocate for how this film needs to come out because it will shed such a cool light on surfing and not that like drug use and smuggling drugs is to be glorified, but it's the reality of where it came from and it kind of gives it a bit of extra edge and a bit more credibility and people and understanding for you know what surfers did to, to track perfect waves and the pursuit of perfection, right? Where especially now more than ever, you can spend $50,000 and push a button and you get a perfect wave. So yeah, and, and the thing I thought was so interesting about it was was the way that he framed it up too was was sort of pre corporate surf world, right? This was some this was stuff that was happening outside of of this surf industry even existing, and and it's really interesting because because it was also uh, the surf industry itself that that really blocked it from from coming out because of because of this sort of the, the, the way that and I think there's a lot of reasons for it. Some is that it incriminates certain people or or lightly incriminates certain people. Well, but his, the other his reasoning for it is makes total sense. You'll see why and like yeah. why it wasn't able to come out. But um, yeah. yeah, and then we break down some of the conspiracies that we had heard through the years and why it didn't come out. But 
for those of you that didn't listen to the first episode you can dive in we'll drop a link somewhere for it but it's further down i can't remember which one it was maybe yeah episode 15 or 16 around that zone but uh we spoke to him a lot about heavy water the film that he that he won awards with about nathan fletcher um and then one of the films that he was working with the sunny film you know he's been working on and that's how i initially met michael and kind of what was happening there so if you haven't caught up with that one go and have a listen otherwise you don't it's not necessary that you listen to the first one before you listen to this one if you're a bit more familiar if you're a bit familiar with sea of darkness um then you can just dive straight in if you're not maybe give it a quick google search yeah and and the impression that i was left with was just what an intellectual i shouldn't say intellectual giant that sounds really corny but the guy has read many books right this is a person who can understand literature and how to frame you know creative storytelling and is not just some kind of you know wannabe filmmaker this dude is has his pedigree is real and and his and his 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 career is uh i mean it's very it's super varied i mean the dude did steven seagal's film so you know like he, he does like everybody else he's had to you know make a paycheck but his grasp on on literature and on and on sort of uh i don't know anything that you that, that we that we um talk about in this in this episode is is just so fun to hear and and so engaging and we just wanted to talk to the dude for the next four hours the other piece of this is what you heard preceding this intro was actually michael just sitting down with his guitar and singing a song for us um so the intro music was also courtesy of of michael obowitz yeah and if it's a bit if if some of the sounds a bit muzzled because he had his mask on yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> he's a senior citizen and he needs to stay safe first That's and foremost right. so uh with that we'll uh, dive straight in enjoy hello los angeles yeah. <laughs> sounds really good michael okay so, so the last time we sat down with you in your backyard in sherman oaks where were we we'll call it sherman Van oaks. Oaks. We'll, we'll call it sherman, sherman oaks. oaks by the sea um we were just kind of touching on sea of darkness and i think we were t- talking a bit about some of the conspiracies we had heard why the film had got shut down you had kind of told us the true story you know i'd heard oh you know bob and these guys from quicksilver had shut it down but we hadn't seen it yet so like before we connect again you have to guys watch it so after we signed the nda today promising you that we wouldn't send them out to everybody now it's official and it's online so you know we signed them uh that we wouldn't share it you sent us a video and we got to watch it today and chad and i were just like in awe the whole time yeah it was it was there first of all that it it Dis, I guess it disconfirmed some of the things or maybe called into question some of my assumptions or some of the sort of lore around Quicksilver and their connection to to that earlier era um, of when the surf industry, we, you know, there's all this lore about it that the surf industry was started on, you know, using drug money. And it probably was, um, or at least in my, in my fantasy somewhere, I want to I think that it was like all these smuggler guys were you know, sort of funneling money into these brands and that, and that, that surfing had this really interesting beginning. Maybe it did, maybe it didn't. Um, and those are the conspiracies that I'd heard. Right. Oh, I just want like, to say something. There were a lot of industries funded on drug money in the 70s. Well, the surf shops on the East Coast were. So that's where, because the drugs were coming up from Central and South America yeah. there, that's where the guys were pumping into all the surf stores there. But in terms of brands, like I'd heard one of the stories, I'd heard no... Why it got shut down was because Michael had left the cameras rolling when they told them they were off already, and then they were talking stories behind the scenes, and that went into the movie. <laughs> and, and Bob McKnight and Bruce Raymond freaked out. So they were all. This film has this whole like mystique around it, and people, this allure and mystique because of it. This like 
unwanted hype around it. No, it's the best best strategy to make a movie. If you if you're not desperate for money, is don't release it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just it was it was all a plan actually. I, I worked the whole thing out. Martin Daddy doesn't really exist. You know, he's out there somewhere in a boat. None of none of none of it is is is, is true. You know, actually, you, you saw the movie. Isn't that at all? No, no. <laughs> the movie's about a couple of guys who go looking for a perfect wave, and they have to finance their uh, their expedition. And they get and they rock up with Kelly Sir French, and they found him. The movie's over. <laughs> it's the real well, movie. Oh, we got Kelly in the movie. Yeah. I mean, you listen, the movie operates by inference. I mean, there wasn't anything that I wanted to put in there that was like gonna get anybody into trouble or get them arrested. Any any anybody who's who's actually um, described as doing anything illegal is dead. And can I ask you an honest question? And you, can, you don't have to answer it honestly, but the version that you launched with at the film festivals and it got the standing ovation, did, did we watch the same version today or had it been recut? Oh, there's so many versions of this film. Um, this is pretty much the version that I have. Um, there, I, there's definitely stuff that I have on film that, that has been in one or another version that is a little, maybe a, a bit more incriminating. But I mean, I think you get the general picture. I mean, you've got Quicksilver is in 56 streets and Mike Boyum is like beloved of Quicksilver and he's in fucking jail for drug dealing and he's he's on a work release program at quicksilver i mean what more do you need yeah, to know yeah can you connect the dots i mean hey you know it's like i mean that's what they did i mean i don't think it's anything to be ashamed of i mean i, I you know i i you know i don't consider bob McKnight a close friends but we have a really good vibe it's not like bob sees me and says hey there's you know that guy you know he's we're always super friendly um I just think the the era is what it is, and it, it like you know Bruce Raymond at some point said, "This is a story that needs to be told." Right? You don't need to tell everything. Um, no, you can be, you can actually trust your yeah. your viewers to 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 I guess make those inferences, right? But yeah, I wasn't one, trying to sensationalize anything. No, but I mean, at one point, the reason I asked the question is at one point Bruce Raymond in the film says. You know, that there's this fork in the road that we all come exactly. to, right? And there's a, you can go left or you can go right. And Boyam and, and, and Chitty went, went left, hard left, and, and those guys tried to stay right. And I guess the question I have, it, not even a question, I guess, well, it is a question, but how, how, how much was, were the lines blurred there? In other words, was there a clear fork? Did those guys really stay in the, on the straight and narrow the whole time? And then these guys were over here doing all the dirt and allowing everybody to live in this great way, or I mean, that... I, mean I wasn't there, so right? I, I, well, I, mean, I mean, but I mean, I know but you spent a lot of time with these guys making I, this movie. Yeah, you got to know mean, everything there is to know about it. Yeah, I mean, look, look, I, I, I think you can say this without getting myself or anybody into trouble. Mm-hmm. There was an enormous amount of cocaine use in the surf. Uh, Surfing culture, uh, f- starting uh, in 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 the late sixties already. You know, for all the Peruvian guys. I mean, there's you know, there's all the, the Peruvian guys living on the North Shore, right? And I mean, Felipe Palmar and 
Alan Sitz and all these guys. I mean, they got these fucking massive houses on the North Shore, right? And Alan's a great pilot. I don't know how Alan got his house or his pilot. I know that Alan's a big Trump supporter and I'm not. But other than that, he's a great guy. I mean, dude, it's, it, it is what it is. I mean, um, you know, Ahmed Ertigan, who was the president of Atlantic Records, apparently used to, you know, ingest enormous amounts of cocaine. And apparently there were lots of, uh, you know, Colombian drug dollars that went into Atlantic Records. I mean, it was the period, right? right. So I don't think... I, th I think we're being, you know, very, uh, very conservative in our um, attitudes when we point a finger at anybody for doing what they did at that time. I mean, the movie clearly states up front, it has that quote from Bob Dylan, to live outside the law, you must be honest. And that's what the movie's really about. It's about this kind of attempt to define a kind of moral code. Like, that they were like, cowboys right living completely off the grid and trying to create a world that was almost utopian and that they did what they had to do it was a lot easier for them to do it because they weren't computers and there wasn't you know it was they weren't able to track uh track people the way they could now and you, you know how easy it was to, i think i spoke about this last time to forge an airplane ticket right you could just you know you, the, the airplane tickets came with three leaf carbon copies and it was kind of very easy to do all that kind of stuff so i think the answer is is yes the lines were blurred i mean everybody's trying to retrieve their reputation especially when we made the movie i mean i think things there's a little bit more hindsight now um i i think it's um bizarre for anybody who was involved in that era to claim to whitewash, you know, to whitewash their past. It, it, I mean, I don't so whitewash my so past. Cool. And it's like, yeah, cool. it's, it's so like, cool. It's not like it's a badge of honor because you don't want to have a like sensationalized and glorified drug use now, but it's like, it's a sign of the times and it happened and it's, it was bitching. And it's look at this rad industry that we have now created the counterculture that is why servers like Geordie and Dana benefited so much from it, from what those guys did, what, what they built and the allure around it. Exactly. No, it, and that's why the movie ends with that. With with all the Quicksilver guys going to back to to to, to Indo, and you got all that footage of Jordy and your young Jordy and Kelly Slater, and they're all on this trip, and there they are, these super professional athletes, and what's happened? Things evolve. Yeah, right? well, I mean, that's and that to me from, and I guess me romanticizing surfing, right? Because it's been my whole life yeah. since I was a little tiny kid, and oh, my romantic version of surfing is is stems from the era that I started surfing, which was in the seventies. And, and understanding that, you know, these beaches and what was happening down to Panga Beach, right? It's, it has a lot to do with everything we were talking about in this film. Um, and, and I think that there's, you know, there's a point in the film where all of a sudden it goes from being like this, these pirates that are out there just literally off, off the grid running their That's own shit. That's what they were. They were to, like cowboys, like To these pirates. very sanitized boats going into the Menowais and just delivering you these perfect waves. To me... The dream was the pirate dream, not the not the sanitized, perfect, mentalized boat stream, which felt to me like that was, oh, maybe Quicksilver or maybe there's Martin Daly and there's influence coming from there that that part of the film was like, OK, now this is the dream. To me, the dream, or at least the way I was interpreting the dream was Boyum's thing. 
even though it got it got real dark, I think Boyum's vision of it was like we're fucking doing this on our it, on our terms and and however the hell we want. But I think Daly is still like that to a degree, right? I mean, I really do. I mean, he's sanitized because they all got sanitized. Well, I mean, he had that, to he had to keep up because other guys were buying boats and that was becoming a thing. So he had to be the biggest and the best, and that was that was a sign of competition. Well, it was yeah. It was it became a big industry, right? At the beginning, it. I mean, what the film really is about is is the creation of the ecotourism industry. I mean, there weren't any uh, uh, surf resorts. There was no Nembrala. There was no Kandui. Yeah. There was no none of this shit. It didn't exist. To 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 even when I went to the Mantuas with Martin in the, in the in the early two thousands. It was there was fuck all in most of the places we went, right? There was, you know, there were there were other boats out there. And believe me, the other boats would scatter when Martin <laughs> Darth Vader arrived. They were they were gone. Dude. Yeah, you know, there was that kind of vibe. It was still very much the, the Wild West, you know, cowboy pirate types. But I think, um, if anything, where there's a fork in the road, it's Martin was living his best pirate life following Dave Barnett, his mentor around. And they were doing illegal stuff. I mean, they were... I mean, that, so in, in the film, they, yeah, they're obviously, what's it called, where you're diving... Salvage Salvaging diving, yeah. Really, right? And it is just so incredible. It's awesome. I mean, they're going down and getting bronze propellers from Japanese sunken torpedoes. China plates. Oh, like, it, with, like perfectly pristine condition. Yeah. And, and then one of the scenes, and I don't want to ruin it for people, but they, they're finding these plates and they're talking about the value of them and they find this one that now gets valued at 60 to 100 grand and someone drops it. Yeah, it's <laughs> Well, but I mean, you have to... Uh, what's really amazing is the physical fortitude of these guys. They're diving 500 feet under the water. These are radical dives. In the middle of the do. night. In the middle of the night with the Indonesian army patrolling around. I mean, you can't invent this stuff. It's absolutely amazing stuff, right? And it's the stuff that great adventure novels are made. And I think that's what the real appeal of the film is, that it exposed this world in, 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 not in its entirety, but in a way that people had never seen anything like it. And yes, drug dealing and drug smuggling was part of it, and wild sex, I mean, that place, the Skull Cave, where they all hang out. And I mean, it was pre-AIDS. It was, you remember in the early 70s, people thought cocaine was really healthy for you. I mean, I kind of always liked the way cocaine made me look. I mean, I was really skinny and I surfed really good. And, you know, I mean, Michael Thompson was ripping on coke. Dude, that guy was, I, I tell you, still, the, for, for my money, the best guy backhanded pipeline that I ever saw was Michael Thompson. And he was high as fuck. You know, and, he, and he had a huge fucking uh, 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 clothing company, Gotcha, which was in its day bigger than Quicksilver or anywhere. And... Were gotcha meetings fueled by lines of cocaine? I'm, I'm, I'm sure they were. You know. Oh no, they were. He told me. He you told know, me back yeah. then, sales meetings. They'd have to fly back to pick it up if they forgot it. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. We, we, we sent people back to places. I remember even in in New York, what was going on. So I think, the, I think the lines are completely blurred. But for the sake of these people's reputations and what they want, trying to preserve and their. You know, I never really had this desire to have the um, the illusion of a middle class conservative life. You know, I am never going to vote Republican in three thousand centuries. It's just the way I am. 
On the other hand, you know, Bruce Raymond, Martin, I don't know where their ideological leanings are, right? But if their ideological leanings sway toward a more conservative, family-oriented lifestyle at this point in time, they're not going to be that keen to admit to some of the things that I didn't cut out from the film that are in there. Uh, believe me, there's plenty that, that is not that, that I didn't put in the film, that I could have put in the film. And... Uh, you know, I, I, it's, 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 I didn't force anybody story, to say anything. I'll tell you that much. In today's world and what we see on TV and the movies and the shit that kids are watching on Netflix and that, the story doesn't seem, it's not that extreme compared to what you can watch. You watch that show Euphoria and how sensationalized drug use is amongst kids and sex and all that. And yeah, it's definitely, it's, it's definitely, it's just it, a great it, story. It predates all that stuff. But the truth is, it told, it told it in the context of a sport. And a sport that's now become an Olympic sport. So here we have this, you know, real, you know, listen, there was plenty of cocaine usage and cocaine smuggling and skiing. I mean, they don't call it snow for nothing, right? <laughs> there was, you know, Joey Cabell and those early surfer guys were all busting moves up to Idaho and all these places. It was, you know, but I don't necessarily think the drug taking was as germane to skiing or mountain climbing, perhaps as it was to surfing. Those sports, um, their flourishing in the West predates surfing. I mean, surfing really starts to flourish as a sport in the 60s, right? And Mike Henson, I think I said this last time, told me quite clearly that he was high as fuck on, 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 on dexedrines and grass when he found the perfect wave in, in at Seal Point or Cape St. Francis, right? They was, you know, he, you know, he was a beatnik. Surfing was definitely seen as a much more um, a countercultural sport, right? It was not it, surfing and skateboarding were not your, your first uh, uh, opportunity but sports for the Olympics. That's why they got so popular because your mom hated them, so you wanted exactly. to do it. So they came along in the, in the '60s, and what made the '60s great? Acid cocaine heroin i mean what did Jimi hendrix wasn't drinking a cup of tea when he was playing all along the watchtower you know yeah and i think it's that it was the it, well i mean it happened in the 50s with the the early beatniks were sort of like tune in turn in drop out i mean they didn't say it that way but that was the way that it worked and they and they decided that they didn't necessarily need to behave by the sort of cultural mores and norms of the time right whereas in the 60s and i think that's what i think that's that ingredients, it would be the beatniks, the bikers, you know, all this sort of great American rebel culture. And it kind of does stem from America. I mean, it wasn't happening in America, but I think a lot of this comes from, well. That's one of the reasons why I came to live in America. Yeah. I mean, I mean America invented the blues. the blues. That's right. The blues does not come from England. Yeah, it exactly. was played by a lot of great British guys. It's called, and it's, but, it's from a painful place, yeah. and that's where the and and there's something about like and the blues comes from the blues and in, in, in every form comes from pain comes from hurt suffering and and something about this boyum character feels very bluesy in that way something about him feels after watching that today feels like this really this tragic character but like but a but also a you know sort of like this he was a hero like to me you know i was talking to him the whole time i'm going you just want these guys to win and you know it's going to go south for him you know the chances they're taking they're just too great. They're going down. It felt you like know. when I was watching Narcos, the, the show yeah. about Escobar and them. You want Escobar to win. <laughs> and <laughs> and like put it this way. I made this a good 10 
10, 12 years before Narcos. Yeah. You know? There was... This movie should have been left out when it was made. Because historically, it was just the first of that. It was before Breaking Bad. It was before... Nobody it's, had it's, done anything like this. Even if it came out now, it holds up. It's so, so good. We were so... I. What, and again, oh, Martin, we have to convince Martin to let me release it. No, he, and he keeps finding one impediment after another. I, I actually stuff. think it's. I actually think that that I'm I'm on board for that. Like so, I'm on board to, to lobby for that because I first of all Martin Daly comes off like a, 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 a boy scout yeah. in this thing. Exactly, almost too much. In fact, the thing that disappointed me about the film, if anything, which is what I opened with, which was it didn't confirm my most my the myth that I wanted it to confirm. It does, right? You said it. You got to connect the dots, but but I I you know I almost want this like this. Okay, here it is, man. Here's the whole thing. All right. So listen, it, it's certainly sanitized, right? Yeah. You know, and in this age of COVID, now we realize we have to sanitize certain things. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I mean, I'm not really one to hang a guy out to dry. I mean, Martin is not a trust fund guy. Whatever money he has, he's earned the hard way. And he's got a family to support, and I wouldn't want to put him in a position where I, you know, would be an impediment to that. And I think, to the degree that people take umbrage with the film, is I think maybe Bruce Raymond and Martin and you know guys that really opened up to me felt that I was taking advantage of them, right? Mm. And I think, to the contrary, I was really not taking advantage of them. I could have made the film a lot heavier than than it was, and. You know, I, I think they all come across awesome. Me they too. They are awesome. They speak well. I mean, they they're so articulate. They this are. is what's so amazing. You know, we have this image of surfers as being so kind of spicoli like, right? And so kind of you know, like 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 like, like uh, what's his name? Sean Sean uh, Con- uh, um, not Sean, uh, Connery. Sean Connery. Sean Connery speaks. Sean, Sean Penn. Sean is spicoli, right? Oh, like, nobody like, can understand what the hell yeah. Sean Connery's talking about. Let's go. Let's oh, be honest. Uh, we can. That's how yeah. Sean Connery's <laughs> very, very well spoken. Yeah. One notch below Dave Edinburgh. Yeah, he's, he's a wonderfully articulate man. But uh, but but there's this perception of surface as being, you know, really inarticulate and, and and uneducated and just baked in the sun and baked in all different ways, and Put it this way, between Bruce Raymond and Martin Daly, there are hundreds of thousands of hours logged in the sun, right? And they're far from baked. Well, Sean Thompson. Sean Thompson's from that era. And look how well he speaks. He should have been the poster boy for professional surfing from the get-go. Well, Sean Thompson was the poster boy for professional surfing. But he kind of took that, tried to take that. Yeah, but the difference between PT and Sean, is P- I love PT, but PT was like definitely more on the party side. Sean Thompson has always been the straightest guy that yeah. I've ever met. I mean, it's what I was saying about Catherine Bigelow earlier. I've never seen Catherine drink anything but or do anything but a quarter beer, right? She's just super straight since I've known her since she was like 19, 20, I don't know, right? Sean's the same thing, right? He's just super straight and he has that image and he was very much focused on 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 his goal to create professional surfing in the way that he saw professional formula one racing or tennis right he kind of he liked that tennis model and i think he is the poster boy if there is a fork in the road in this thing the fork in the road is between sean and all these guys going off to endo like sean and sean had never been to endo when sean came with me on the trip right when we, when we started the movie 
He'd never been to India, neither had I, because we couldn't go. We had South African passports. We weren't allowed to go there back in the day. So we missed that whole thing, luckily for me. You would have been in jail. Jesus. Yeah. I, would have, I would have been the first one executed. I would have been the first one. You imagine me and Michael Thompson rocking up. Rasmus got shot in the face. You'd well, got shot in the I want to get way more into the Rasmus so thing. One of the it. questions of and kind of what we're on, and I was going to save some of the audience questions for later, but one of them from Sean Tully, who has just been dying asking us when you would come back on, but he was asking, can surfing be rebellious again? Well, look, here's the irony. So now, how does surfing, um, how, how, does, how is surfing rebellious? We have well, Kelly. again. Well, I'm going to respond. So we have Kelly Slater going in the middle of a pandemic to Indonesia and broadcasting this footage all over the internet because now we have new, uh, new methods of, of, of media transportation than, than in the early days, right? So it's instant, right? And there's all these images of him and Patet and uh, Rizal and, and, and doing double barrels and, and fucking gorgeous empty uh, uh, Padang and Oluwatu and they're going off their nut. And then, then there are people coming on with righteous indignation on Kelly's uh, Instagram page and saying, what the fuck are you doing, dude? We're in a pandemic. What kind of example are you setting, right? And then Kelly answers, right? Well, you're drinking the Kool-Aid. Buddy. I don't know if you read Kelly's thing, but he's, you know, he's, you know, him and I are always corresponding on, I guess, because we're like antagonists in some weird way. We're always going back and forth. But anyway, that's Kelly being rebellious. But we have to analyze what that rebellion is at this point, because does rebellion now mean that you're a follower of QAnon and conspiracy theories because you're going against the politically correct grain? And in fact, what you're doing is buying into a bunch of right wing fascist totalitarian bullshit. And you're not being rebellious at all, because in fact, the underpinning of that kind of rebellion is something so conservative and so right wing and so totalitarian at its core that it's not rebellion at all. And this is the irony and the complexity of where we've arrived in this day and age. So if you ask, can surfing be rebellious again? We have to ask, can anything be rebellious again? What does rebellion mean? When you have people objecting to wearing face masks during a massive pandemic, the like of which we haven't seen since the 1920s, right? And ironically, it's the 2020s, it's 100 years, and this is when these epidemics seem to show, right? You have them refusing to wear face masks um, under the, uh, the, the guise of freedom, right? You're, you're, you're removing our personal freedom. But as Jean-Paul Sartre said, the great French existentialist philosopher who seemed to know more about freedom than anybody that I've ever studied, he said, so long as one person is in prison, nobody is free. There is no such thing as freedom without responsibility because freedom is not just some notion of I can do whatever the fuck I want. Now, I've got the freedom to kill you and you've got the freedom to kill me and we've got the freedom to infect each. Oh, we have so much freedom. We don't know what to do with it. And of course, now we're all dying. So how free are you when you're lying in your hospital bed with a fucking oxygen mask and a ventilator? Are you free then? Because that's what you get for your freedom, right? So we live in a very complex society right now. 
things were much more innocent back in 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 1972 and 73 and 74 right and it was binary there was like it was much there more was binary. like you're a square and you follow the nixon kind of path or you're a hippie right right and there was gray between all that but for the most not part a lot of gray not really like you were either plugged in or you're freaking l7 right which is a square and you make it l7 um and for you kids, square used to mean like lame. Okay, lame, right? And lame used to mean I don't know what's the new word. Um, so, but the, that's a really interesting point because I think it is in in order for you to be a rebel, you have to be rebelling against something, and then people need to be reacting to you rebelling against that thing, as though your actions are are potentially harmful for civilized society. Well, you know, it's it's like look, I can get very philosophical about this right um about 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 how um how meaning is refracted in the the way that meaning is is created now in this in this postmodernist society is so different to the way meaning was created then it's really you know if I can play a song right now and it could be out on like, you know, 4,000 media outlets in seconds, right? I mean, Bob Dylan had his first number one hit. You know, Bob Dylan has never, ever had a number one hit until a single, until he released that song at the beginning of the COVID pandemic, that like rambling 12-minute amazing song, Murder Most Foul, about political intrigue and conspiracy, right? It was perfectly timed. Because that song could be released on the internet, and there's this whole well, new it's that story of searching for Sugar Man. It's that story. There's, there's a guy that's suppressed in some little town in Detroit that was probably the Bob Dylan before Bob Dylan that no one ever heard about. Well, it wasn't before Bob Dylan. Well, in that South Africa, era. maybe. Yeah. Yeah, but that same era, right? And could have been a star too, and on that level. But, but there was no media. No one heard of Rodriguez, and there was no way for him to get it out. And then they made a movie about it in an age of mediatization. So the question is the answer to the question of the guy who asked me the question is what's his name? Sean. Tully. Sean Tully. Sean Tully. The answer to that question is. I don't think it can be rebellious in the way that it was because because of the kind of the semiotic nature, the the, the sign, the, the the way things signify now, right? To be to be Michael Peterson in nineteen sixty nine or sixty seventy, right? Was super fucking radical, dude. Or Jeff Hackman, high on fucking heroin and surfing Sunset Beach. Those guys were surfing in a way that nobody had ever seen before. It's like when we saw Wayne Lynch arriving at J-Bay with the first surfboard, short boards, right? Like 6-0 boards. Suddenly the boards went from like 8-6 to 6-0. That was a lot of board to chop off, you know, without anybody knowing about it because you didn't have an internet to convey this meaning. So uh, the, 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 the instantaneous, instantaneity of the internet makes things so available so fast that a rebellion by its nature is not a rebellion five minutes later, right? It's, it's, it's become the status quo, right? So how do we bring back rebellion? I don't know. I mean, you look at a guy like, like take Mikey February being super retro and he's surface style and yet being able to be, re- rebe- be 
super retro, but not using retro equipment, right? He's like got this incredible style, but he's very stylized, but he's, he's still doing aerials and stuff like that. If he was doing what he was doing in that look in 1974, it would be the most rebellious thing that happened. I guess the last really rebellious well, moment Fletcher. in surfing is Christian Fletcher. Okay, Christian, Christian Fletcher. Nathan Fl is still rebellious in the way that he approaches a wave and then he surfs. Yeah, but, but we're being yeah. in, a very specific, yeah. in a very specific context because the, 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 you have to be commodified now in order to survive. Remember, I mean, no, Nathan and I can't go and... And, and deal a fucking kilo of cocaine and get away with it now, right? But if we were in 1972, we could probably get away with it. So we weren't beholden to, to vans or Red Bull or whatever we're working for to, to earn our money. The, the world has become extremely corporatized. And I think this gets back, Chad, to what you were originally saying about Sea of Darkness. The reason why it had so much controversy is because... The film depicts a period when surfing was not corporate, right. right? And surfing then became corporate, and it depicts that period as well, and it's a kind of arc, right? And those guys involved in the film who were telling me stories quite nostalgically about the period when surfing wasn't corporate and when they all, you know, were following the tune of the, of the Pied Piper, Mike Boyham, right? And quite a wonderful tune it was, as you yeah. saw, um, ran right into the brick wall of their own success. Suddenly, Quicksilver is a corporately held company. And at the time when Sea of Darkness came out, Quicksilver was hanging on by a fucking thread. It was a publicly held company. And they were trying to, you know, all those guys were trying to profit from their shares and they wanted to get really really rich and the last thing a publicly held company on wall street needed to have around was a fucking documentary yeah that uh showed that its beginnings were uh in something illegal especially because we were right there in the age of uh of george bush conservatism and it was the height of the of what was what was the the Nancy Reagan drug thing? The, the, oh no, that the, was before. No, but, but it was they, still. But there was yeah, still. Yeah, still in, the, in still the just that. say no era. The just dare, say no, and exactly. Dare thing and and and, yeah. and the crack epidemic yeah. it was coming to an end, and 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 the, they were having these. You know, there was. You know, marijuana is now legal. Back in two thousand and nine, you could still go to jail for fifteen years. For, for people selling, sitting in jail from 2009. Exactly, for selling an ounce of grass. Well, let me, let me right? back, let so, me back so, up. You, just, I just want to say, yeah, so yeah. there's a relativity to all this stuff. And there's a relativity to using the word rebellion even. How can anything be rebellion? I don't know because the world, the, nature right now is rebelling against culture. Yeah. That's the real rebellion. The real rebellion is that. And is nature I, produced COVID to be to rebel? Yeah, <laughs> just right here. The you fires, go. look at you the air, look at, look at the, look what's going on right now, right? The, 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 the red sun, the blood orange sky, and the air we can't breathe. It's totally apocalyptic. It is apocalyptic. The, the, so, how do you, how does a sport become rebellious when the whole world is in an apocalyptic, you know, collapse? Well, that's right. It, it but the, I think even, even deeper than that, not deeper, but, but, but I think the mechanism by which it becomes less rebellious 
and everything becomes less rebellious and everything becomes like sort of homogenous and predictable is because everything's so readily available so quickly um, there's no time for something to be to become myth right so myth is myth takes generations or it takes a long time and it takes uh, and it takes an, an, in other words your film just by having a trailer out there it created some myth around it right and even I kind of bought into the myth of, of the film it was like when rock and roll albums used to come out so like Pink Floyd would come out with a new album and everybody would be like what do they mean by the lyrics because there wasn't the internet you couldn't just google what the lyrics meant you'd have to try to figure oh they're talking about Sid Barrett Sid Barrett lost his mind and everybody and so this, the, 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 the boyams of the world and, and that kind of ilk I think you know, there was a myth created around that whole Quicksilver and all those dudes because everybody's hanging out together, Jerry, everybody. And so I think that is why, that's the mechanism that prevents, to well, me, that prevents re rebellion. Totally. And I remember watching Bones Brigade even, you know, more recent and being so sad that that could never happen again. You could never have that crew of misfits come together because each kid would have been taken and held by some big team manager straight away now yeah, right. any kid that you're a baker kid i, I, I think that's what yeah. made heavy water a good follow-up to sea of darkness because i was dealing with the last the last tangible pieces of a mythology jay adams and christian Asoy and 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 christian fletcher and bruce and Andy, who were just, I mean, Bruce even said to me when he saw the movie, he said, Michael, I wish you'd have done the Andy movie because this is the real telling of, that, of Andy's story. That moment in, 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 uh, in, in Heavy Water when Andy wins the title after he's almost OD'd and you see the people standing on the beach of Pipeline and that you hear the echoing of the, of the crowds in the background, you know? And I think Sea of Darkness was my first, was my first surfing movie, I guess. So it was my first understanding that I had the ability to penetrate that culture and see its mytholo mythological past for what it is. And then ironically, I got lucky with history by not releasing the film, that this film about a mythological era itself got mythologized by being suppressed by those members of that era who wanted to whitewash their past, right? And in so doing, they enshrined their past, right? And, you know, sooner or later, everybody's going to die, but Sea of Darkness is still going to be there, you know, because, listen, I'm pretty good technologically, and I can... You're pretty savvy. I've been impressed. I can press, <laughs> I can press that computer button whenever I want to. Yeah, and, you know, in the bricks, I, got, the... I got the key to the nuclear code. Don't worry. So, you know, when it, when it needs to be unleashed, it will be, right? And then I do, as you can tell, unleash it certain... Well, I feel like, know, for me, and why I would encourage Martin Daly to, and I doubt he'll listen to this, but to release this film is because it is, I'm 100% certain that there will be a Hollywood feature film that will come out of it. Something, will, something will come will, out of it. Yeah, the, the, the rights to it won't be bought. It'll be, there'll be some kind of energy. Well, you know, we had, listen, we've had some really big bites. I mean, there was, a, you know, I had a big meeting up at Disney with, with like one of the radical companies um but they do eschew drug you know it's different the, the easiest way to make something like this is within the um the arena of television these days television is far uh more uh 
uh, open minded Ooh, streaming like yeah, streaming yeah, yeah, Netflix, Netflix or, or Amazon or, yeah, yeah or, 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 or you know even Fox or some of them they do I mean Breaking Bad was Sons of Anarchy AMC you know Fox all these networks yeah, do Dirk this Ziff. Dirk Ziff should fund this thing Huh? Dirk Ziff should no, but that's thing. exactly no, but where they won't go. You see, because, they won't do that because they like need more than anyone. Because it's yeah, like but the they don't, but, would benefit from. It. Yeah, but they would draw. They would draw the line at that for precisely the same reason that Bruce and Martin wouldn't want to use this movie to um, glamorize their past, say, or you know, like, like look, Jerry Lopez said to me when I when I when I wanted to put him on camera and uh, talk about Mike Boy, he said to me. Mike Boehm was a really cool brother and he was someone that I loved dearly and I learned a lot from him and I don't want to partake in anything that would dirty up his reputation, right? Without admitting to anything Boehm had done or not done, right? But because I had Grubby or Peter McCabe He's the most wonderful guy. He is player. awesome. Right? Of all the people I've ever met in my life, I love Peter McCabe. Yeah, he's so one much. of my favorites now. And he's always been one of my. I have a board from. I showed you one in my garage. Yeah. A bat tail. It's one of the best boards I ever had in my life. Surfing with Peter McCabe at the Pass in Byron Bay was one of the probably the epic surf session of my fucking life. It was back in like the whatever two thousand and seven two, and we were. F- fucking partying it up the night before we had this trailer that we were staying in like like he knew clocks cat he knew you know i mean this is his territory dude this is like the man right peter is a fucking man and he just shaped me it was just when people were starting like stretching they were doing back tails right and four fins right he shaped, it was my first four fin i'd ever had right and he shaped me this four-fin bat tail, this red one that he presented to me with the with the tiger claw from Gillian on it. And the movie wasn't done yet. We were still, you know, but we had just vibed he from the from the so first cool. moment we spoke on the phone yeah. to, from Australia. We vibed, and it was back. Well, we, you know, I was partying a lot back then, and so was he. And we could just tell. I got called him from fucking LA, and the two of us were just like fucking cracked out of our brains and we had this most of them and he said you gotta you gotta come mate you gotta come to Newcastle right right <laughs> yeah well then we're gonna go up to Byron Bay and, da, 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 da. and it was just this and I'll shape you a board and it was legendary and you know and he's just like short little grey haired paunchy guy and then you watch this fucker surf dude he's always been one of the greats and they say that very clearly in the movie if the movie is about anything it's about entrenching Peter McCabe is the greatest goofy footer of all time I mean, people just... Yeah, the, the comparison with him and Jerry yeah. trying to surf out there and the different contrasting yeah, styles. Yeah, like how and Peter how was much, more athletic. And, yeah, that's it. And they talk about it, how much more radical he was. He was just so radical back. He was riding a fucking single fin and just carving off. There's that one shot of him just banking off the top no, of the it's insane. And like swiveling, doesn't he? He looks like he's on a, 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 a chewed up thruster. <laughs> At least, yeah. He's just like fucking just turning on. And he was never a competition surfer. He was the ultimate soul surfer, which I think he and Jerry had in common. But Jerry entered a lot more competitions than Peter did. So how did Peter then... So Peter introduced me to Jeff Chitty. That's when I got got the real story. was when Peter and I vibed on the phone. There was not going to be no guarantee we were going to vibe. I can still remember to this day. I was like fucking like high when you're vibrating with highness. You know, you're, you're like somewhere between ecstasy and death. 
You know, you can feel that if you just snort one more line, you're going to fucking OD. You know, and I don't really drink. I didn't really drink then. Anyway, so, you know, I was always like about, you know, what was going to make me more... You know, I loved Sigmund Freud writing all these books on coke. I want to know what was going to make me more creative. And that was the same vibe with Grubby the moment I met him. You know, we were just like talking about board design and shaping and music. It was just like an instant intellectual buzz, right? And then I came to Australia and we went to Byron Bay and we were staying in this like fucking like trailer caravan of Byron. He knew it was fire. I've, I've been to Byron Bay so many times since then. I've never seen a fucking decent wave there. It was firing, dude. The past. Have you been to the past? Yeah. Have you ever man. seen a good? Yeah. yeah. Jordan yeah. and I used to spend a lot of time down there. When dude, it was just fucking. And that backwash, trying to paddle back that rip. Dude, I don't know how this guy was like fucking motorboats. Like he was racing up and down there. Uh, it, it was extraordinary. And, and because Peter and I vibed so well, and Peter told me the real story, when I cut through all the bullshit, because Peter, it wasn't Martin and Bruce and all of them weren't that close to Boyan. Peter was the guy who was in cahoots with Boyan and Chitty. They were the drug dealers, dude. They were... That, and that's they kind of where I was going, shit, is dude. McCabe. So when I went to Bali, it was in the early 90s. So it was well after a lot yeah. of that. But it wasn't too far out. Not too far out. It was... and, and I met Peter McCabe and we hung out. Like I got He wouldn't remember me, but I, I was around him and a bunch of other people. But, but yeah, at Ulu. And he was kind of there. But he was, he was already done. He was like done with all of Bali. Same thing. You'd meet the guy. He's this little tubby dude. You'd, now, I'd sit there talking to him, drinking beer with him. I thought he was just some like washed up Aussie. I didn't think he surfed. I don't even know who the fuck he was. Anyway, that's not the point. Point being is that what I, what the, the, the thing that to me about it that's interesting is, is that Boyum seemed to have the same sort of chemical makeup by the way he's described in this as any great cult leader. Like he had the charisma, he had the sort of almost, you know, the almost the religious dogma you know, all of the stuff was good. not religious, but but in the way that his lifestyle was was lived in his macrobiotic diet and all the other stuff. Did were there other McCabe's and Chitties that were sort of in his periphery? Were there other devotees around him? Because that's what those guys seem like to me. It seemed like Peter and Chitty, at least those two guys, seemed like div- de- and even Jerry, as you're describing it, seemed like they were devotees of Boyum. I think. I mean, certainly. Uh, Bob McKnight described the magnetism of Boyum. That, that, they're, they're, all right, you talk about things that aren't in the movie. There was the line that Martin Daly said, Boyum seemed like such a nice guy, but he should have had horns growing out of his head. Oh. And Bill Boyum asked me to take that line out of the movie because he felt it was disrespectful to his brother. And, you know, I did little things like that. God knows why, because none of these guys supported the movie anyway. They still went after me, left, right, and center. Uh, but I think that was the truest, the truest line. If I was ever going to put any one thing back into that movie, I'd put that into the movie just because it shows the arc of Boyum's character, right? And that as charming and as... Uh, progressive and as innovative Brian was and he certainly was I mean people weren't surfers weren't going around eating red beans and rice and hanging from gravity bell, uh, gravity boots and doing yoga I mean he was really he was doing intermittent fasting and he was doing all, all of this stuff, stuff. Yeah. I mean 
you know, certainly guys like John Peck were, were into that stuff early, uh, you know, in the, in the late 60s. Um, and there's that fantastic uh, photograph of uh, Dick Brewer and Reno Abalera and, and Jerry. And Jerry, yeah, yeah, doing yoga, right? They were into it. It was definitely in the air. I mean, we have to understand what the late 60s was about. I mean, what, what was that Bob Dylan line? There was music in the cafes at night and revolution in the air, yeah. right? It was like things were changing. That's Can we ever have that kind of... I don't know. I mean, right now, I think everybody would be very happy with peace and quiet and a nice... A nice, a nice <laughs> patrician, um, uh, bumbling old Franklin Roosevelt type leader in Joe Biden. You know, someone who's not innovative, who's not going to confront anybody. We just need to get back to like someone that shuts the fuck up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Biden shuts the fuck up really well. He does. He just, just let's yeah. get back to some nice peace and quiet, so we can go meditate somewhere, and we can we can figure all this shit out because it's it's just gotten too much noise, right? There's there's too many channels. We're, we've got too many channels going on. Too you much know? information. Too, too many mu- streams and too many different too many different publishers. Yeah. So I think, boy, I, but, but I think Boyum at that point in time was able to channel everybody's energies in a certain way because. He was a visionary. I mean, he fucking invented everything about modern surf style. Now, Martin Daly said to me quite clearly, he said, because I, I always wanted to know this, right? Because I'm like, always consider myself the arch kook, right? But I'm like the surfing groupie and Boyan was a big surfing groupie. And I said, well, because Martin's a pretty good surfer. And I said to Martin, well, how, do, how did Boyan surf? And he said, you surf better than him, Michael. <laughs> Which is that kind of backhanded compliment insult. <laughs> right. And Martin had seen me almost drown at G-Land, right? He hadn't fucking saved me. And he said that was... He said he really couldn't surf. But who did they talk about in the film who would just eat shit? Boy, that was him. Yeah, that was Boyan. Right? Yeah, but he would just keep... Yeah, it. He was super fit. Yeah. And he would try... But he really couldn't surf. But he valorized every famous surfer. And he got them. In his, because he was so fit and he was so focused, right? And he had this vision. I mean, the guy discovered Cloud Nine in the Philippines. That's where he ended up. He was, you know, he got Vanuatu. He was really the explorer of the South Pacific. All no, the, we had a big giggle where he would just be onto the next place next and he just, yeah. he would just circle something on a map. And we were basically like, we're chatting, chance it's like throwing, he was throwing darts at the map, being like, there's waves here. We well, go. he knew, but he knew, you know, you and, can't, you, and, you, you know, you, you can't just do it like that. I no. mean, but, it's just as easy to rock up on a fucking desert beach and you'd be like in that movie The Beach where there's not a wave in sight, right? As it is to arrive at a place. I mean, he, his track record was pretty good. I mean, Cloud Nine in the Philippines is a fucking good wave, right? That's where he ended up. Soago, whatever it's yeah, called. Siago, yeah, Right? And then Vanuatu's got really good surf in the, in the South Pacific. And then... Uh, That's New Caledonia, right? New Caledonia, yeah. yeah. He was the first guy there to surf. And, uh, and then and G-Land. I mean, that's a fucking good track record for Discovery right there. So talking about, like, he loved being around these pro surfers and these different characters. Bill Murray rocks up in the film. He rocks up and he had visited the island at some stage. Why was he never interviewed? Right. Dude, have you ever tried to reach Bill Murray? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Bill Murray's not an easy guy to get a hold of, right? Um, I think... You know, I don't know whether I think maybe Jack McCoy. Someone's trying to redo a movie on on G Land. You know, try to tell the real story, like whitewash the story. Uh, I think they were, they, were, they were talking to Bill Murray. I don't know. I I didn't really need Bill Murray in the movie. I I, I certainly don't 
like documentaries where you have famous people telling the stories, you know, like where you have like Ed Norton narrating or anything. I like the people who are in the story to tell the story themselves. I think Bill Murray would have, I just, yeah. but, he, but, but, he, but the truth is Bill Murray was there because of his friendship with Rory Russell yeah. and Rory's in the movie Rory's a good friend of mine yeah Rory's great he, I love Rory movie, but no, that's why the only reason Bill Murray was there why I thought yeah because he and Rory had been friends time. yeah but so, why I liked Bill Murray the thought of Bill Murray was because I figured he would have been able to articulate and put such a funny spin on what the scene that he saw when he was there for whatever it would have been but believe me we tried to get Bill Murray okay <laughs> yeah. but it was just not forthcoming right and Perhaps, you know, if I redid the movie, now I'd be able to get Bill Murray because the movie's got such, um, you know, uh, an allure. And, 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 but, but I don't know. I, re- I really don't know. And I mean, you know, I'd... boy, all the guys like Reno, you know, what's amazing for me watching the movie is still watching how healthy Reno looks and, and, uh, and, 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 and Rory. Rory and everybody. And everybody's gotten so sick. And I mean, even like, when you watch the Sunny movie, I mean... Two thirds of the people in the movie are dead. I mean, it's it, it is kind of scary. I mean, if if there's any testimony to the rebellious nature of surfers, it's what really happens to them, right? Even before and after their 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 days in the sun as a professional yeah. surfers. Look at Derek Ho. Yeah, know? and even Tom Carroll talked about it. Like you know, when he he would come up with these crazy highs of riding big waves and you would need something to get back up there so it'd be drugs, right? And that's, and that's such a big toll on your body. You hit that certain point and just all collapses. But one of this is actually one of Chad's questions, but he talks about at one point in the film, you uh, point to Daly and Quicksilver as an indie trade as a kind of Boyan's G-Land like dream, right? And you know, that's what he had been working towards chasing the perfect waves. But it seemed that uh, to, to us that Boyan and some of the others involved might have also been chasing like the adrenaline of the deals, right? Of the the coke deal almost had that same kind of. Well, I think there was a. I think there was a displacement, right? That happens. I I do think you know. uh, I mean, Martin Daly, who is really smart, as you can tell, really articulate. Of course. He sums it up when he says surfing is like an addiction, like any addiction, like uh, like sex, right, or drugs, right. And I think, as powerful as surfing was and is. I think at a certain point in the late 70s and early 80s, surfers found something more powerful, and that was heroin and cocaine. And it really, you know, cocaine, you're as good as your last lion. At some point, the wonderful description I was talking about of cocaine when I was talking to Peter McCabe, it doesn't last, right? right. At some point, it just it wears out its welcome, or it wears you out, right? And that's... The tragedy of that, and 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 when it at that moment when it becomes the thing, right, and all you and, and it's a fix on so many levels. When you're living in an era when you can actually bring in like twenty kilos in a suitcase, which you you know sealed up with with with, pla- with 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 plastic and airplane glue, and you can get through the customs because there's nobody tracking you with facial recognition or anything like that, and you can get away with that. That is a thrill in and of itself. That it's, would it's, be it's, better than getting. That would be more extreme than oh, getting the best wave of the day. No, I think no, I think no. It's, it's even better. It. It's even better when you get away with it. That's it. And then you arrive at G Land. And then you get the big wave after that, and then you do another line after that, and then you hatch up another plot. And for me, to me, the movie, I, I describe the movie like a funnel, right? It's like a wide open top of, I don't know what the top of a funnel is called, but I'm sure there's a name for it, right? 
and everything is going into it. You know that they're 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 eating mushrooms and there's beautiful women and there's Shirley Rogers taking photographs on the beach in a bikini and Eddie Rothman's there. You know, a lot of, I don't mention a lot of these people by name, right? But there are actually pictures of them in the movie, right? I, I, it's a little more subtle than than, than it might might think, right? But all the and 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 um, Boyum is is is. Uh, training ants on, uh, on, 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 on mushrooms and everybody's just having a fabulous time and surfing these great waves and movie stars like Bill Murray are showing up and it's just one fantastic party but slowly the funnel is narrowing and the goal is becoming more obsessive and the goal is about making the next deal and going to the next place and the management of G-Land starts to falling apart and the the indonesians are getting pissed off and dude the indonesians introduced the death penalty for drug dealing because of these guys there wasn't a death penalty the, the way when we go to indonesia now and you get off the plane you see that nine millimeter pistol image pointing at you you know do you have any drugs well, well we shoot you for drugs right right so and then there's a little garbage can you know like now what do i do there's a pistol <laughs> pointing at me here and there's a garbage can and what do i drink? drop my ounce of blow in here and then they find that and they kill me anyway or where do I go I'm between a rock and a hard place that didn't exist back then right but the funnel starts narrowing and and uh but what about yeah. the smear campaign they used Indonesian uh, media used to take the island away from them well you know again like they've always been corrupt as all hell down there right and 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 I think Boyum made himself vulnerable you know he wasn't he wasn't strategic. I mean, he was. It wasn't like he wasn't doing this shit. You know, the FBI were tracking him down there. I mean, you know, eventually, you know, the yachts would rock up with the FBI trailing the yacht, and people were getting arrested. Everybody, it just got too big. It got out of control, and uh, it was kind of like everything from the '60s and '70s, right? It all. It, it was like the story I was telling you earlier about Francis Ford Coppola's studio. You know, like Zotrop things just blew up and and i think things get out of control when you do too much cocaine the funnel is an interesting that like it gets right to one of my questions or not questions but just conversation starters which is the conrad you know part of darkness oh, yeah. apocalypse now that there's well, that's so boyam is colonel kurtz that's my, absolutely in my mind i mean that was why it's called sea of darkness you know, is is it was it's completely heart of darkness, and the film is not really trying to be an expose of the surf industry or anything like that. The film is a story about obsession, and the nature of obsession, and what happens when someone, in some way, realizes their obsessive dream, and then has to take it to the next level. And that's the Colonel Kurtz character in Heart of Darkness, and that's the Marlon Brando character in Apocalypse Now. And that's why it was really a coup. I'm happy to have made friends with my right-wing neoliberal conservative buddies to get right-wing neoliberal John Milius into the movie because ultimately I don't judge artists by their political affiliation, right? I'm definitely not part of the Me Too cancel culture you know, I still think, just as a, as a digression, that the biggest mistake we have right now was Kristen Gillibrand me-tooing uh, Al Franken. 
because Al Franken would have been... He's a lion, that He guy. would have been the yeah. presidential candidate that would have wiped out Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. For sure. He had all the allure, all the um, uh, prestige, all the um, television... Uh, 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 you know, hype that Trump has. He was a star. And the intelligence that and that, uh, that Trump lacks, and 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 the fortitude, the moral fortitude, and the ethics, and and I think that's the problem with cancel culture. And in as you know, in as much as you can't cancel everybody for everything, there's no there's no black and white. It's like a gray. It's like there is no fork in the road, right? There's like there's 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 a, there's a lot of gray in between areas, and that that's the nuance and. Antonin Artaud was an incredible artist. He was also a fascist, you know. So was, you know, Jean Cocteau. It was a, it was a couple of those great French writers were were uh, oh, Celine, not Cocteau, Celine, right? Uh, so it's the same with John Milius. I can't hold his politics against him. The guy is the most insightful brilliant screenwriter yeah, and when, when he mentioned conrad and he was very quiet about yeah, it right yeah. he, he almost had to catch it he said conrad and then he said something about kurtz and then he said something about a river and i went oh, okay i know what you're talking about and then when he said that the whole thing and i told duma after we watched it, i said that was basically that was an, that was apocalypse now yeah that's what the that, that about. film was apocalypse now and and that's exactly then i started picking up on all these other pieces of it which you poor bastards are listening to this are just going I got to see this film. We ain't going to send it to you. We signed an NDA. It's not going to happen. But the... Well, I, just, the I just... One the keystroke. One keystroke and that download right. changes. That's right. We're not, we can't do it. So, but but the, the thing is, rad. I mean, there's moments in there that, that are... You know, you've got the rising sun and you've got the jungle and you've got the, the Huey sounds and the, and then it's all, and it's all right there. It's all just like these little cues that are, it's real good. And, yeah. and, and I repeat that again in, in heavy water when uh, Nathan, when Nathan's flying out, when we're going to go do the jump and, and it starts raining and you see the trees and the chopper's going ding, 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 ding. and Nathan says, uh, Charlie don't surf. Right. Uh, and so I, it's a motif for me. Look, I yeah. think, I think John Milius is surfing's greatest narrator, right? Big Wednesday, Apocalypse Now. Those are the greatest surfing scenes, you know. Um, Catherine might be a, a far third with Point Break, you know. There haven't really been any other great Hollywood films that can talk about surfing. Surf's anymore. up. The animation exactly. was based on exactly right. None of that, and and certainly the one the, the one that we're not allowed to talk about. I was telling you about this afternoon. Doesn't sound like it's going to be a worthy follow up. I, I I've always wanted to make the feature of Sea of Darkness. I know it would be I, I could do an incredible job, but I have the script. It's just been really hard to get it off the ground. Um, this is what it needs though to get it off the ground. This film right here. Well, the documentary came out, it's, it would I mean, get off the, the ground two months. But, but I mean, there are things, look, there are things going on. I mean, I've always got shit going on. But what is the most, in your opinion, other than the sunny story that you're working on, what is the most interesting in sur- story in surfing that hasn't been told? Oh, shit. Well, there's a lot. I mean, honestly, the one that I'd really like to do, but again, I couldn't get anyone to finance it, is Mike Henson's story. You know, the, the, um, the, the story, what, what's his book called? Uh, the transcendental cosmic pilot you know that thing yeah i mean mike henson is a really interesting story because mike henson was right there uh 
at the beginning, 59, 60, working for Hobie. Like when he was 16, he was already sh glassing and shaping for Hobie. He was like a protege and a prodigy. And he starts surfing, but he also starts doing drugs. And then he goes, he goes off on... Uh, this round the world tour. On, on this... Uh, um, Endless summer. Endless summer thing. And he's, uh, he's the beatnik surfer. You know, you've got straight edge Robert August and Bruce Brown. And then you've got hipster... You know, blonde-haired Mike Hinson, who basically became the look of surfing. The the, the old sto the the story that you hear about him discovering Cape Saint Francis is how he was having a a big blow with everybody from the film because he was scaping. Yeah, and he was off smoking weed around the yeah, corner, and, and, and he kind of disappeared. And he was and high, he Tom. He was high on on Dexedrine, like the Winobenzadrine. They used to, which is what Jack Kerouac did. Them, it's a kind of speed, and he would. They would eat this, so he never slept, right? Yeah, my mom and dad were on that shit for yeah. my whole childhood. Excellent stuff. Yeah. <laughs> well, they probably looked really good. Ja um, Jack Kennedy, they used to. Oh yeah, inject, fit like vitamin Both B. Both were skinny as can I mean, be. Bob Dylan, how do you think you, you know, when he got the, when he got the Nobel Prize, the, the woman from, from uh, uh, Sweden, where was Sweden, they get the Nobel Prize, and, and we give the Nobel Prize to Bob Dylan for the music that he wrote during his drug era. He, he actually got it for his, for a specific period of time. The, you know, the music, the, the stuff, Highway 61, a blonde on blonde, when he was like jacking fucking meth, dude, he was like a little shrimpy skinny yeah but he was writing this fantastic stuff and and Hinson told me I, I did a few interviews with Hinson I really tried to make yeah. make the movie happen and then Hinson goes on to form Rainbow Surfboards right and uh, his girlfriend his wife at the time was uh, her sister or something was, was banging Jimi Hendrix and that's how Jimi Hendrix came to do Rainbow Bridge. I mean, that's the most amazing story of surfing, right? They did Rainbow Bridge. And Hinson was dealing massive caps of acid at the time. And he said he'd never seen anybody take as many caps of acid as Jimi Hendrix. But the guy was just chowing them all day. And, and, and Rainbow Bridge, for many people, was like the end of the 60s. You know, it was like Hendrix's last concert. And it was on Maui. And if you, you've seen the movie, right? Yeah. Right? And I haven't seen it. Yeah, and it's uh, I use a couple of clips of the movie in in my movie where the, where they open yeah. up the the surfboard, the rainbow surfboard with the hashish in it, right? So I mean, I've always wanted to do Henson's story. I think it's a really from a historical perspective. I think it's a great story. And Mike's really old. And you know, when I spoke to him about he'd seen Sea of Darkness and he really wanted me to do it, and I tried so hard to get money for it and. I, couldn't get any money now you know people are terrified of drug stories for some reason but they all want them and i guess now it would be a lot easier but people are also terrified of surfing stories for some reason because they're always done so poorly like they're they really haven't i mean as you just said i mean you said yourself big wednesday and and i think you weren't being facetious the penguins move that one with the penguins surf's up was, surf's up was actually a really great depiction it really was that they, they depicted surfing in a really. I mean, it's as funny as it was. I'm not big on animated movies. No, no, no of course not. Made but, in Japan, anime. I love that. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but very few, anyways, have had. But this, I think that Henson was part of the whole Brotherhood of Eternal Love, exactly. right? Exactly, and and so that makes it even more interesting. See, story. to me, that's that. There's but a someone really tried good to do story. A I know they tried, but it's lame. I, I don't. I'm sorry if you were listening, but it I, it wasn't. It just didn't do it justice. The story's better. Leary was involved. If Timothy Leary's in it, and the way that Timothy Leary, as you famously always talk about, Damien with, with the 
the way he describes surfing. And That's one of my favorite quotes. Oh, when, when he describes surfing and, and, and philosophy in life. And, you know, it, it brings me back to that really interesting question about can surfing be rebellious again? And I think you have to really, we're at a turning point where people have to return to real intelligence. People have to start reading books again. And it, intellect start, is the new books, not new, internet bullshit exactly. QAnon. Intellect is the new rebellion. Yeah, I mean, this QAnon, it's a lot of crap, dude. It's like people just overloading nonsense out there. You're Michael, there are, there are children in a pizza <laughs> parlor underneath the floor. If you just looked hard enough, Hillary Clinton is selling them. She's, yeah, she's got and else to do. She has, right. She's a farm of children. And, I mean, this is what they're talking and then, about. What, and what did you say? I'd be surprised how many people believe this shit. You'd be surprised no. how many people we know that are oh, probably close to that believe I know. It's terrifying me. I'm having a, I, I am at the point now where some of my best friends on the North Shore, I may have to uh, terminate their uh, Instagram pages because I really have no interest in this shit. I mean, go read fucking Michel Foucault. Go read... If you really want to understand conspiracy, go read Baudrillard, The Simulacrum. Go watch The Matrix 15 times and try and understand what The Matrix is about, right? And the notion of The Simulacrum, of how reality imitates itself, right, in, the, in its mediation. And really get a handle on that intellectually and what that means and the kind of duplicity of of communication and as William Burroughs called it the word image virus that's the real and he wrote that in the 1950s right that we are that we are under the sway of the word image virus right language is a virus right but you have to understand how that virus mutates and how it how it forces people to have belief systems that are based on no belief at all, right? And we've really reached, the crisis in the road that we've reached here is as distressing as that story I told you earlier where, where the forces of Pinochet chopped off the hands of Victor Jara, the great uh, Chilean guitarist and folk singer, right? Because they couldn't deal with his intellectual message. They had no way of dealing with it. So they came in with a blunt instrument, that's how totalitarian governments work. Mm -hmm. And that's my biggest fear for what is going to happen. If we get four more years of Donald Trump and we get this outpouring of this disinformation, which is all this QAnon bullshit and all this conspiracy crap, where people who are by nature intellectually lazy believe all these memes and all this crap, go read a fucking book, you idiots. Yeah, but those books are that the books are are actually they're they're liberal they're they're like left. liberal propaganda. Yeah, they're liberal propaganda, yes. and you shouldn't read those books because they're harmful for your. Well, go have some harm. Remember yeah. all the drugs <laughs> yeah. you took that harmed you. Go harm yourself with some books. Exactly. Let me tell you, because you know, I mean. It's I mean, just, it's it, the blind leading the and, fucking and blind. You, it's beyond it. And if you want to talk to something a bit closer to us, an actual surfing, I don't know if you saw yesterday or the day before, uh, Tyler Wright post, you know. Tyler I loved Wright's, it. I wrote a huge thing and I got attacked. And so, well, you should have seen on WSL's Instagram, the hate and the commentary along that is disgusting. Because it what? It's shameful to be a surfer. And people don't even know what they're talking about the, the conversation about marxism and black lives matter oh. means this and that and, and, and well listen when, when kelly slater said to me well how would you like 
your city that you live in to be run by Antifa. And I'm going, Kelly, Antifa is not a Just fucking when... organization. Listen, my grandparents were killed by fascists. They were Jews in Lithuania. And I've been to the shallow grave where their bodies are still there. And you can put your hand in the earth and you can feel their bones because that's what fascists do. They kill people that don't believe in what they say. They have hate and anger against anything that opposes them. So you're either a fascist or you're an anti-fascist. There is no gray area with fascism, right? And if you're an anti-fascist, the abbreviation for anti-fascist is A-N-T-I-F-A. It's not a fucking movement. It is the position any intellectual person will take if they're dealing with opposition to totalitarian fascistic governments. You know, ask Salma Sekela, have Salima explain it to you, okay? Have someone who grew up uh, with his father being exiled from a fascist government who couldn't go to the homeland where he was born in. Understand this fucking shit. Stop being idiots. It's it's actually your the 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 way I look at it is it it's stopping children is what it is. Grow no, no, the fuck idiots. up. Children are beautiful. Children <laughs> no, are no, beautiful no. things. No, what I'm saying is that they they need to there's a there's a there's a there is a, it's a funny it's a weird uh, lazy innocence about the way that they're or ignorance. It's just, but it is. It's it's being spood fed shit. But it's 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 the same crap like believing that crystals are gonna make you healed. You know, there's a thing. Wait, we're in Topanga, dude. You can't. Don't talk smack about crystals. Dude, let me just. (laughs) I think crystals are beautiful. (laughs) I I think crystals are beautiful. You can give me my bag full of crystals. I like to put them on my fucking mantelpiece and have the sun shine through them. Right, but. The bottom line is we're communicating through a focus right over here. The focus right is invented by science, right? Yes. The internet that all these dumb fucking QAnon idiots communicate with is invented by science, okay? It's cause and effect. It's the same as everything that operates in this world. If you have a virus called COVID and you spray your spit into someone's face, they're going to contract the virus. That's just the nature. It's not some suppressive, weird government conspiracy. The the president today said uh, climate change plays no role in the Western wildfires. I don't think science knows. No, no, I don't think the president knows. That, but that's what you're dealing idiot. with. You've got this guy up top. And everybody is just, everybody's he... protecting their commercial interests by voting for him but, and defending him. Because it's more money but, in but, but the problem is, the commercial interests of the people at large are not being protected by this Absolutely, guy. Absolutely. The they all talk Africa. about his great, his great, his great economic uh, prowess. Dude, this country is the worst economic shape it's ever been in. It's fucking bankrupt. The... And I mean, it's the same in South Africa. The very people that are suffering the most and that are hurt the most by the corruption in the country are the people that vote at the ANCN time and time again. And that's well, the same as America. Donald Trump is suppressing the very people that vote him in. And they're but, still, but the, the but, but what they do, track record than Donald Trump. Yeah, but, totally. but, but, but what they do, though, the easy that they have, it's so easy for the, the Republicans have been playing this this game for the last, oh, I don't know, the disinformation 30 years. And not, the way that they do it is they, they say to you, you're better off. Trump is Trump is just the, just one the extreme. He's sort of like the end of the road for this thing. He's a protege of Roger Stone. That's Roger right. Stone was right there working He's with got a Nixon Richard Nixon. On his back, it's it's all it? Nixon. Yeah, exactly. It's, a, it's, it's, dirty it's the trick. same shit. And it's the way they do it is they say, they say, 
we're Christian. They co-opt the religion first, and they say we're Christian, and now you got to be like our kind of. And it's a weird brand of Christianity. It's not. And I, I, I always have to be very careful because a lot of times I'll, I'll be, well, I'll just offend people in general, and and by being a, a, an atheist, and so, but the Christianity is one of the th- ways they do it, and then they use Christianity, and they use these these Bible verses that don't exist, like you know the anti-gay Bible verse or well, the anti-whatever. They distort it, right? And it's not even, and, and even then, it's like weird interpretations of those things. They, they interpret it in a way that's favorable to them, which was the King James version of the whole thing anyhow, which was like the way that, you know, that, that the church would suppress the... the anyway, get exactly. on to that. But they use that. Again, they use abortion. is a virus. They use, it, right, virus. A great, they use a great thing. They use abortion and they use homosexuality to scare... Because, the, because a lot of people haven't been exposed to anything that's different from them. And they've used those, those, those wedge issues... Abortion wasn't a wasn't a, or, or a choice or lack thereof choice was not was not the sort of domain of one political party or another until Reagan, and Reagan made it a thing. And then they also the other thing they try to tell you is big government's terrible. You don't want big government because it's taxing. You don't want to pay taxes. So they use but, go- but they, when you become sixty five and you want your Medicare and you want your social no security, no you can't have that shit what you've been the paying government. into that right. you've and been these paying are the into pe- that and these are the guys yeah. just like you were saying about the answer these are the guys who are voting for Trump who's the next thing he's going to do is take away social security and Medicare yeah, and he doesn't have any money to pay for these have diabetes they're sick they've got no money so let, let's let's go back yeah. to surfing and then yeah. but let's also let's make this work because this is one of the things that Damien and I were trying to do. Um, and I think it might have been podcast number two. We were really struggling with how to have this conversation because I, surfing to me, again, back to the rebel thing. Surfing was like, like, and again, we're in this era of like, you know, we're not supposed to talk bad about cops or we're supposed to talk bad about cops. I'm just saying, when I was a kid, you smoked weed if you surfed, right? And you, you didn't want it cops because co- weed was illegal, so cops were lame, exactly. you know? And you ditched school. And you went surfed, and you did your fucking thing, just like Boyum and all those guys did at the, on a much more extreme level. That was a surfer. You were a surfer. You I don't, still think they didn't give that, believe me. You, no, no, no I know. I know. They are. But and they're my fans. There's cool little subcultures. You go down to Malibu Beach on like a Tuesday oh, morning. Dude, everybody's hi, Mike. Riding. Hi, Mike. Yeah. I want to see your film, dude. You know, yeah. you go, no, yeah, no, and they have bands, and they sleep in, and they've got these young little dirty-looking babes that are coming dude, out. Dude, the I rocked up at Zeros with my Bronco, and this like young blonde chick says, hey, do you sleep in the back of that thing? And I'm, and she's like, I said, where do you sleep? I sleep in my car. And I'm going, do I sleep in the back of this thing? Maybe I sleep in the back of this thing. I, I never have, but hey, maybe but, this is the time. But it no, does, no. it still exists, right? There's no, still I'm part grateful of it. for that. I think yeah. it's awesome. Yeah. But, but it's not, but again, back to media. It's still the simulacrum. It's not the, but, you remember with the Coca-Cola ad? It's the real thing. Yeah. We're not in an era anymore where we can have the real thing, right? We're always going to have the simulacrum of the thing, yeah. right? It's just... It's mutated. It, everything is like a virus. It just mutates and it changes and it reforms itself and it becomes something new. Eventually, nothing stays the same, right? But should should conservatism have a place? No. Should, it shouldn't, right? Nowhere. There is no universe. Listen, the worst thing coming out of South Africa, right, when I did, which it was very clear cut. South Africa back then was like the discussion of Antifa now, right? It was either you're for apartheid 
or you're against apartheid. It wasn't like, hey, there's a middle area here where we half apartheid. We, apartheid is fascism. Fascism is something that killed my grandparents. Fascism is something that's killing these black people. I don't think it's right to have slaves. I'm sorry. That's what I believe. Or you believe the opposite, right? As like my parents did, or your parents probably did, or whatever. But it's a clear-cut kind of thing, right? When I came to America, I discovered, because I went to New York, right? I discovered this whole breed of patrician wasp on Wall Street, because the art world, which I was so into, and which I was making all this great radical left-wing art and films and stuff that's all in the Museum of Modern Art and all that stuff, and all these incredible artists that I met, like Lawrence Wiener and Joseph Kotsuth, who were so radical, and they, they were Judy Rifka, and their work was so, like, cutting edge. They were all selling their pieces for millions of dollars to these patrician Wall Street wasp guys in their khaki pants and their Brooks Brothers seersucker suits and their, uh, you know, their, their loafers. And we would go out to their houses in Kennebunkport and Maine and in West Hampton and South Hampton and East Hampton. And I spent, there was always this weird contradiction because these people came from these very patrician conservative wasp families. And I I had to learn about this. You know, the thing about South Africa was I didn't really understand the patrician Afrikaner family because I was so opposed to them, right? Even though I spoke what, what is Afrikaans. Give me a little bit more description. What does that mean? The patrician? I, well, I, I'm, well, I'm all right, not, so, I guess I'm just... I'm, well, you know, like the, the classic... Say, uh, we arrived on the May on the Mayflower, right? Sure, okay. The pilgrim, so just the wasp, yeah, like the, the, the classic white, yeah, uh, yeah sure. right. And it, and and so, you know, people that have a strong historical heritage and investment in their in their lineage, right, and in mm-hmm. their culture, which is what Trump is trying to conservatism always appeals to. You know, if you you know if your family goes back. 12 generations and you've got property that you bought all over the place and there's this accumulated wealth. I mean, that's patrician. You're a landowner, right? You have all the stuff that you feel you need to protect. It's your your heritage, right? I didn't really get that in South Africa because South Africa, you were either just white or black, right? And if you were white, you were privileged. And and, and you kind of felt wealthy because you had servants and you had like a nice house and stuff like that. And if you, you know, my family was pretty affluent too. And I didn't notice how much easier it was for a, a first or second generation South African to get wealthy because you're getting wealthy on the backs of a, it's basically an enslaved population. So I didn't feel that patrician thing so much. Although if I was more perceptive, I would have understood what I was trying to say earlier, like these old Afrikaans, Huguenot families who went back like hundreds of years and had these beautiful wine farms and they had something that they were invested in, right? In the cult. I just never felt any investment in South Africa because I was first generation. My dad had come there and he, my mother had come from England after the war and they were just there and they met on a beach and that's how it happened, right? Um, I think when I came to America, I really saw this for the first time, this middle culture where people could be conservative but still support all these radical things. And there was this weird crossover. That was New York. Well, there's and no like right, Republican it, or Democratic in South Africa. It's just, no, it was just Democratic parties. Cock and, 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 and yeah. you know, It was either one thing or another. And it was just, you know, back when I grew up, it was like 
the Nationalist Party what? or fuck, there was some kind of weird uh, alternative white progressive, but there was like we had one member of parliament. It was uh, you either supported the Nationalists or you went underground with the ANC and tried to overthrow it. It was a very clear cut situation. So I don't know where the place is for conservatism, but I mean, in surfing, like to me, conservatism in surfing specifically is a very odd thing because again, growing up here, even in this affluent area, um, if you were a surfer, you were, you were a bit of a low life. I mean, even if, even if you came from a really good family, surfers were definitely low life. Yeah. You were, my father was really unhappy that I became a surfer. Right, he wanted. I could have been a rugby. You know, everybody's into sports in South Africa. Surfing in the '60s, not a sport. Well, not only that, but surfers were appropriating whatever they thought was radical, like iron crosses and swastikas, and there were all these. You know, like uh, there was what's the Wilbur Kuckemeyer, and they were always like had like Nazi helmets on. It wasn't because they were appropriating Nazi culture. It was because these signs offended people. Yeah. Right. But of course, in South Africa, like the Pump was, House Gang, you just go around. You know, yeah. But right, in South Africa, it took on a different meaning, unfortunately. Because of course. We're living in a country that had a lot of Nazis in it, and they were supporting a kind of Nazi-style culture. So there was a lot of complex issues. You know, one of my good friends back in the day when I first came to America was Rian Milan. Rian Milan's grandfather was D.F. Milan, who was the first. Prime Minister of South Africa, the architect of apartheid. He was the most... And Rian went on to publish a book called My Traitor's Heart. Have you ever read it? No, but the book's very famous. So Rian and I were talking about cocaine music buddies. We were like, when we were in our 20s, we were like living in... in, I'd come out, I'd had a place in New York. I was doing a lot of music videos, eh? big time. I had a place in New York and a place in L.A., and when I was in LA, I'd hang out with Rion, and Rion was writing. I was with him when he was writing the book before it came out. And the, the guy was like one of the smartest guys I've ever met. And he had absolutely run away from his Afrikaans family. He'd run, he'd betrayed everybody. He was hated. He came, he came from a patrician Afrikaner family. He was the first real, you know, high level Afrikaans family that I really understood, right? And the guy was rebellious as fuck. I mean, you, you couldn't give him enough coke and alcohol. He was an amazing musician. And when that book came out, it was huge. I mean, I, everybody wanted to do a movie of it. And he wouldn't let anybody make a movie of it, right? And he became so famous from that book, he thought, fuck it, I've cracked it. And he went back to South Africa. And he's never left. Amazing. He's an amazing guy. He finally went back. He proved his point, you know? And then he went back. You know, Mandela came out of prison and he went back and he committed himself to it. Um, a very interesting guy. But, you know, but that's the world that I grew up in, right? And in that world, there is no place for conservatism in any way, shape or form, right? So for me, um, you know, there are contradictions between what people can achieve in a sport and what their political impulses would be. Like I heard that Gabriel Medina was a big fan of Bolsonaro. Yes, yeah, him and Neymar, I think. Yeah, uh, the soccer the player. player. Yeah, but I got to tell you that Medina is one of the most revolutionary surfers I've ever seen. I mean, he's certainly truly, yeah, truly exceptional. I mean, I didn't want to give him his props at first, but I kept watching him. I mean, look, I still say all of that stuff derives out of Christian Fletcher. 
you know, and Christian Fletcher was truly radical. But Christian Fletcher, you're not going to get the most uh, left-wing ideas. No, dude, he's a major Trump fan. He loves Trump. Loves Trump. Exactly. So it's like, how do you analyze all of this stuff? How do you fit it into a package? You don't. What you have to do is read Hunter Thompson, right? And when you read Hunter Thompson, who was himself from a patrician kind of waspy family, and you read the push and the pull and the antagonism between all of these different cultural forces. And from all of this, you end up making art. That's what it's all about. I'm not as concerned about another four years of a Republican government as I am concerned about four years of Republican government destroying the earth and I'm not going to be around to make my art and nobody's going to be around to fucking hear it. That's what I'm concerned about, right? Blowing the whole... Because these people are so shit fuck stupid, they'll mm-hmm. blow the whole fucking place up. That's what I'm really concerned about. But I think in terms of all of these internal impulses and contradictions and... Dude, it's like Buddy Guy said to me when I was... I did a documentary on Buddy Guy, the guitar player. Oh, and wow. he said to me, the blues is like a gumbo got to get all the right ingredients in the stew and cook that whole fucking thing man and you just know and it smells just right and it's just thick like that that you got the blues but that and now i'm gonna play i just thought of the song give me the guitar this is the song that we should play that, that i can do quickly for you i just record it right it's a great song <laughs> Early in the morning, at half past four, came cocaine came knocking at my door. I got cocaine running around my brain. Cocaine's for horses, not for men. Doctor said it's gonna kill you, but he don't know when. I got cocaine. Running all around my brain This podcast is produced by Free Radicals, an agency founded by Chad White and Damian Farrenfort, who operate under the belief that traditional advertising is dead. Chad and Damien believe brands should focus on improving the lives of consumers, and they help you do this by uncovering insights and developing ideas. For more info about what they do and the work they've done, check out their website at www.freeradicals.tv. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. 
And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.